Coronavirus Coronavirus Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are surviving the coronavirus. And we are surviving it with our friends Leighton Flower and David Lewis. And they're talking about Calvinism in a live stream. And they might have a live virus, so we need to take our precautions and and kind of uh, stay away from them. So we'll kind of push them a little way to the side. And uh, keep your distance. Social distancing is the key to this type of interaction. So, Leighton Flowers and David Lewis are talking about Calvinism, and uh, let's see what they have to say. We're going to kind of jump in at the 46-minute mark, which is when I first started their live stream. So, Leighton Flowers, David Lewis, tell us all about it. You say something is a bad thing while at the same time saying it was causally determined by our God for his glory. So, no, I, so I agree. So, I'm, I'll be the first Calvinist to admit that there are let's call them tensions uh, I, w I would want to call them that because it's my position <laughs> tensions okay um but um uh, in in that framework but what i would push back on you is there's also issues in the other framework so for example if god created the universe knowing that there would be rape yet he created that universe anyway knowing that isn't he still somewhat responsible, even from your view, of ordaining it? Now, the, the answer is yes. I, I give the example of uh, Terence Fretheim at uh, the Society of Biblical Literature event in which he was talking to an Ordian open theist, an open theist who follows uh, Ord's teaching about God can't. God can't prevent evil because it's uh, part of his nature. And Fretheim's more of a biblical open theist. He, he cares about what the Bible says. He, he seems to believe it. And uh, so he pointed out in response, because he was commenting on this paper, that yes, God does bear some responsibility for his creation. Now there's going to be different levels of responsibility. Me walking past a guy getting mugged, I, I don't have the same responsibility moral responsibility as i do if i'm the one mugging that guy those those are different level levels but uh, in some respects i am culpable now theology tends to be this shell game of trying to make god the best possible thing possible and so there's a lot of apologies apologetics uh, there's there's a lot of sheltering God from criticism that theology goes through where people build these elaborate systems to shield God from any sense of culpability whatsoever. Um, I, I don't buy it. God in creating the world bears some responsibility. We see this play out actually in Genesis 6 where God is sorry. What's he sorry about? He's not like, oh, I see these people. These people are so evil and it makes me sad. He's sorry about his own action in creation. He is giving himself some of the blame. God bears some responsibility for the world that he has created. Now, the Calvinist God, very much more so, because in the Calvinist system, God has decreed everything eternally for God's greatest good. Uh, nothing can happen other than what does happen. And the reason everything happens, every single molecule, every single, you know, we, we use the example of that, Texas shooter, the one that fell out of media attention when it was no longer relevant for their narrative, uh, the one that we don't have explanations for of motive and, 
and uh, the logistics, that one, well, God, in, in James White's mind, determined every single bullet of that shooter, every single person who died in that event, was for God's greatest glory, which is a little bit more morally uh, reprehensible than just creating a world in which that can happen, and then maybe sitting back and allowing things to play out uh, without intervention. Those are two different levels of culpability. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what they say about that. Leighton has his own answers. Oh, okay. You can remove it one step, right? And say, well, he didn't directly, like you Calvinists say, he causally ordained it. And he caught, okay, so, uh, granted. But in every other theistic system, isn't it, don't you have to deal with the problem that God created a universe where there would be rape? Couldn't he have not created that universe? Couldn't he have created a perfect universe? He chose to create a universe where that stuff is happening. So part of my problem as a Calvinist listening to, not I'm not going to say you in particular, but just Arminians in general, they want to act like us Calvinists are the only one that have the problem with this theodicy issue. That God, you Calvinists, God's on the hook for evil in your system. In ours, he's not. Well, wait a minute. Yes, he is. Because okay. if he created a universe where he knew there would be rape, but he did it anyway. Okay. Let, let, me, answer. let me answer. Not only that, just created a universe in which it's possible that a rape could happen. You do bear some culpability. Yes, granted. Not, not the same amount of culpability as the actual rapist. In Calvinism, God is the rapist. Right? So I, I could uh, dress up like Batman and then uh, walk around the city all day and try to protect people from rape right I, I could devote all my resources into that and uh, so in some sense I'm culpable for things that happen because it's within possibly my sphere of control to stop them from happening but uh, uh, me sitting here in my fallout shelter with my toilet paper is not the same as raping someone right there, there, there's there's massively different levels of culpability that we're talking about here to that. Oh, yeah. Um, one, I don't know, you're not intentionally relying on a fallacy here, but the, the fallacy that you're relying on is called the U2 fallacy. Instead okay. of answering the charge of divine causal determinism, you're, in, you're instead saying, Leighton, you have the same problem because you affirm omniscience. Yeah. And, 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 and I agree, there is a problem. It's not the same problem. Mm -hmm. And the U2 fallacy is ultimately saying, instead of answering the problem from our perspective of EDD, which is exhausted divine determinism, in short, EDD, instead of answering the problem of exhausted divine determinism, I just turn it upon my opponent and say, you answer the problem of omniscience. Now, we have answers to the problem of omniscience with regard to whether it's Molinism, the eternal now view of God, um, uh, open theism is uh, is an answer to that problem as well uh, within within the Christian world that's that's uh, considered considered more her uh, heterodox by uh, in heresy by some because uh, of its denial of God's uh, ability to know future free choices. But there's yeah. some nuances within that. And Brian Wagner was still on here. He would talk about the dynamic perspective that he might hold to. Yeah. So um, so you've got you've got different answers from the Molinistic from the Boethian type of eternal now view with C.S. Lewis, the, the, like I said, the open theist view, all of those are philosophical answers to the problem of omniscience. How does God know all things? Um, and I have answers, and I've got a lot of different, I've talked about it in my book, I've got broadcasts all on those answers, but that doesn't excuse the Calvinist over here still withholding EDD. You still have to answer the problem of not just God knowing it and permitting it, 
like I might know before I have children, I know that if I have a son, if I have a daughter, they're going to sin. I know that. I, I, I don't maybe know specifics as much as God would, but I know generally that they're going to sin. And I choose to have a child anyway, therefore I've casually determined them to do that? No. So let's talk about levels of culpability. So let's take the Molinus model. Let's take the Arminian model. God from time eternal has this data set in his mind of all true propositions which would ever exist based on uh, traditional traditional omniscience is this is ungenerated uh, a knowledge that is just with God from all time eternal, right? God doesn't know because God sees. God knows through a system of acquiring information. He doesn't acquire information. It's it's automatically part of his nature. He doesn't receive it from outside himself. And it's part of his eternal creation of the world. And so the classical Molinist model and the classical Arminian model is the same as Calvinism in which all things are fated from time eternal. Not even God, not even God can change what will actualize. Everything is fated based on uh, perhaps the universe that God actualizes. God doesn't have any choice but to actualize the current universe. Functionally speaking, Calvinism and Arminianism is the same model. It's, it's the same model going on where God is meticulously determining everything that happens um, due to the world he decided to create. Uh, inalterably, fatalistically, it couldn't be other than what it is. Don't let them fool you. Uh, don't let them fool you. God's knowledge of all propositions that would ever exist is eternal and ungenerated in their model. It could not be other than what it is. Despite them saying, oh, God could have done that. No, not in your model. Uh, it, there's, there's no percent chance that anything could be other than what it was. There's no possibility. There's no probability. Just look up the definitions of those words. In order for something to be a possibility, it has to have some probability. I, I, I pointed this out uh, on, on some forum, and the guy, the guy, one of the guys responded to me. He's a Calvinist. He said, you have to be open atheist to believe this. <laughs> so uh, if, if you believe that for something to be a possibility, it has to have a probability, you're an open theist. <laughs> I, I thought you just had to understand basic definitions of words, right? Uh, for something to be a possibility, there has to be a probability of it happening. If there's zero probability of something happening, it's not a possibility. And so, all right, so that that's a little bit of uh, uh, a critique against Leighton Flowers' view that he's going to claim he has an answer for, but they really don't. How something with no possibility is a probability, they don't have an answer for that, as demonstrated in, in various discussions with these individuals. But David Lewis is correct on this point. And so if, if you're looking at levels of culpability, of course, Calvinist, uh, Calvinism, God's doing everything for his greatest glory. In Arminianism, God's choice in the actualized universe, of course, is fatalistic, but they'll say it's uh, due to the greatest good that he could bring about. So, which is a different level of moral culpability as doing everything for my greatest glory. If I'm doing everything for self, self-glory, that's a little less noble than doing it for everyone else. 
and open theism has the lowest level of culpability. God didn't necessarily want the things that happened to happen, didn't know that they were going to happen, and at worst sits by and allows them to happen either through non-action, either through negligence, shirking his duty, as he's accused of throughout the Psalms, or uh, out of uh, just not caring, right? And so th those are various possibilities in the open theist model for the motivations between behind God's actions. Of course, God could be trying to go for a greater good. Maybe God doesn't prefer, he, he might be weighing consequences of different actions. Everything has trade-offs in the real world. You can't always get what you want. And so do you do direct intervention? Do you suck people straight to hell through a chasm? Do you use the Syrians to inflict punishment on your behalf and then they might overstep their bounds? Then you have to punish them. Everything has has different trade-offs. The, the, the results of those actions are, are pretty hard to predict. Remember, the, the cities in which Jesus did most his miracles were the ones who had the most unbelief, right? You, you, might, you might just assume that would be, be the opposite, but action does not necessarily lead to our intended results. No, of course not. And in the same way, I think it's possible, though it may be difficult for us to understand fully, that God can fully know what free creatures will choose to do. So I can, I can, Jesus can know that Peter's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows, but Jesus is not causally determining for Peter to do those things. He's just, he just knows it. There's no causal link between knowledge and uh, 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 and the the action of the knowledge, just simply because the person who do, uh, knows it could have stopped it and didn't. That now, is there a problem with that? Yes, there's a problem with that. Um, and by the way, I don't think open theists get away from that problem because, uh, and I hate to use the rape analogy, but um, even even if uh, even if God doesn't know future free choices of creatures way down in the future, He can surely see the the man climbing through the window of the woman knowing full well that he's a rapist and that he's about to rape this woman and he could uh, somehow causally make a police officer drive by that moment and come rescue her he, he could interrupt that moment and stop it from happening so open theism doesn't get away from the problem of god permitting for evil things to happen like rape and murder and child molestation and all these things that happen god i think it's interesting how these discussions of moral culpability in god uh, often neglect the Psalms in which God is called out for inaction. Uh, to how long are you going to ignore our prayers? Uh, turn your face towards us. Hear our prayers. Act. These these calls for God to respond. These types of uh, this these types of Psalms are often taken by these same people as oh, you know these are just people just venting their emotions. They're not really to be taken seriously. They don't actually believe God is being negligent. They hold a view of God. Uh, like we do, uh, in our view of God, you know, there's a greater good for all things that happen. I'm not saying that uh, Layden Flowers takes that position, or he might take that position. I don't know. But uh, it doesn't deal seriously with the language of the Psalms. Uh, and the Psalms are just dismissed as emo exasperated, emotional pleading that, that doesn't, it, it might be, have emotional baggage to them. So it can't be taken as a serious picture of their views about God. I think that's absolutely wrong. 
I think uh, in in the Psalms and in, in the moments of despair, that's when our theology is put to the test, and that's when our real views about who God is and how God acts actually materialize. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, preachers and theologians they talk about God in very lofty terms, but their practical day to day life does not reflect their beliefs about who God is and what God does. These Calvinists who think that God determines everything for his greatest glory, they will pray to God to do things, right? So either you're praying for what God's already determined for his greatest glory, or you're praying against what God has determined for his greatest glory. You're either praying against God or praying without effect, one of the two. They, they practically do not live out the lives that they teach theologically. Only open theists uh, live in an honest relationship with God. God could at least stop it in the moment, and he doesn't do that. And therefore, you still got the problem on the open theist view of God permitting bad people to do bad things. And so uh, the reason I bring up all those things is that, yes, you're correct. Both views have an issue to deal with, but they're different, very different issues. There's a very different issue from me knowing right now in Africa there are children starving, and that if I sold the computer that I'm looking at right now, I could probably stop at least one of them from starving, and I don't do anything about it, and every one of you watching this program in the exact same situation, mm -hmm. um, there's a big difference between that and me locking a kid in my basement. I had a Calvinist pastor who who basically argued like that, like, yeah, it's, it's a sin to go to the movies and stuff like that because all that money could be used for charity. Jesus has the interesting moment uh, in the Gospels, in which this woman uses a year's worth of salary on perfume to pour on his feet, and then uh, the the apostles are around. They're like, "We could have we could have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor." And uh, Jesus is like, "Let her be. You know, I'm only with you for a time. The poor will always be with you." Basically, uh, Jesus was setting up a value structure because you'll always have poor. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, this, this money's not going to quite be as effective. You know, a better use of this money right now is for anointing my feet, which is uh, a very, very interesting uh, point by Jesus that uh, a lot of people who, who think that Jesus was purely social justice orientated, like uh, raising the poor, lifting the poor up. Uh, they they have a hard time with this verse. Uh, looking at his revealed his revealed preferences or his his revealed theology, where the poor doesn't don't always take preferences, and we don't have to sacrifice everything for the poor necessarily. And th there's there's other values that we need to consider when doing actions. And Lane Flowers might be doing more good for the world by putting out videos about Calvinism than he would selling his computer to save or to alleviate a little bit of poverty in Africa. Uh, we, we don't know. And, and you know, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say he's real, he might be culpable in a sense for that, but uh, it's not a very strong culpability. As he points out, this is a pretty good illustration. And starving him to death. There's a huge difference between those two things. One of them, I am determining it personally. I have locked a kid in my basement. The other one is I am refraining from acting in a such a way as to find somebody and, uh, and and stop them from starving in their natural habitat or whatever it is. There's obviously a huge distinction between those two things. And that's the kind of distinction I'm kind of draw between my Calvinistic friends and myself 
is to say, yes, um, yes, we do have a problem, but our problem is much less significant, I think, than EDD, uh, because ultimately it's, it's, it's originating in the mind and the heart of God for molestation and all these horrible, heinous, evil things if EDD is true, and it's not on our view. And yeah. so that's why I push back on that. No, that helps. Yeah, and 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 take your point. I'm really good at the U two fallacy, so I'm an expert at that for, in all areas of my life. When I fight yeah. with my wife, oh, you do it too. Anyway, so, yes. so, so that's what I'm saying. we all do. I mean, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, all, we all want to point the put the put the other person back in yeah. the hot seat and say, well, this is your problem. This is what you have, instead of dealing with the problem that we have. And so I would just turn back around and just say, well, before before I give you answers to how we deal with omniscience. How do you deal with omnideterminism? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I claim omniscience and you claim omnideterminism, and I'm trying to say how do you justify omnideterminism in a world of crime and hate and murder and molestation? Yeah, so I mean, if we if you want to pull up Acts four twenty seven and twenty eight, and we can walk through it together and just see how we understand it, because that's one of the texts that really convinced me of. I don't know how I would label it, but which one? Acts what four twenty seven and twenty eight. Okay. Um. And then, and then, Leighton, the other thing, you know, and, and you get you get criticized for this all the time, and I just want to bring it up. I mean, your analogies are great, but we're not God. So, you know, I'm not omnipresent. I'm not all-powerful. I do not, you know, I don't have a, a plan that I'm working out. So the analogies, sometimes it's like, it's a good analogy, but it's like all analogies, they break down. In Calvinism, God's plan is uh, to glorify Himself the greatest. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider that a very good motivation for action. If there's someone who I knew and that that was their primary motivation for self glory or reflecting your self glory, I would think that they are a sociopath, uh, a psychopath, someone with mental issues without concern for other people. And that is the Calvinist picture of God. Uh, they they say it all the time. God's created this world. All things happen for God's greatest glory. Remember, God can't receive anything from outside himself. So he's not going to receive pleasure in uh, making us happy. He's not going to receive relationship benefits from interaction with us. Everything's this grand facade to maximally glorify God. And it's not even a real glory that God can receive to himself. It's, it's a reflection because remember, God cannot receive from outside himself. He is impassable. And if he were to gain anything, you know, then then he would be in need of the universe. And God can't be in need of the universe. This is their value sets. It's it's a sociopath God that they're discussing. That's why Roger Olson points out, you know, uh, he points out that open theists more agree with Arminians about the nature and character of God, whereas God's motivations are in love rather than uh, sociopathy, right? Sociopathy, uh, being psychotic. But uh, let's go back and we'll, we'll listen to see what they say. So you know the analogy you just gave. Well, uh, analogies, analogies, the, the purpose of analogies is the same purpose that the scripture has for analogies. Yeah. So yeah, Leighton's making an excellent point here. So the Bible uses analogies all the time. And the purpose is to communicate something of value to the listener. And Calvinists don't like the implications of analogies, like the analogy of the potter and clay. Did God finish 
what God originally set out to do. There's a Bob Enyard debate with uh, Calvinist. The Calvinist refused to answer. And Bob Enyard, he's just sitting there. He's exasperated. And he's like, uh, you know, it's like we're having a discussion about the parable of the seeds. And you can't even admit the seeds hit the ground. What first Before we talk about what the parable means, can we just agree what happens in the parable? They, they, didn't, they didn't want to just say what legitimately happened in the described parable because it's so antithetical to their theology and it actually meets the definition of uh, the explanation of the parable in jeremiah 18 the parable is explained that when people return or repent when the or become evil god will not do what god thought to do god would not do what he said he is going to do god was planning to do something god was preparing to do something god thought he was going to do something then the people changed, then God changed. That's the explanation of the parable. They won't admit that God did not finish what God originally set out to create in the parable. So it communicates something of value to us. It connects two cognitive domains. I think uh, a very good explanation of these these metaphors or parables or, or how language functions is found in The Suffering of God by Terence Fretheim, who we've, we've already mentioned. There's a whole section that I forgot existed until very, very recently, which he goes over cognitive domains and how one, an idiom, a figure of speech needs to map from one to the other to give value to the listener. David Lewis is denying any of it exists. Why? Because of his preconceptions of who God is and how God operates in his mind god is completely other and so no language can really give us anything of meaning about god because god is so outside of our expressions of our of our the adequacy of our language that it's it's practically useless that our metaphors our analogies break down in his mind because only because they are about god who in his theology, he adopts kind of an idea of ineffability, where God is beyond description. And so these, these parables do not quite apply. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly, but you, you, you get that from what he's describing here. He's trying to belittle analogies. And you know what Alain Flowers does? He points out that analogies are a way to explain a way of looking at things. It's able to introduce new concepts. So David... Lewis should be able to look at the analogy and then see how Leighton Flowers views a particular subject. And he, he's going to have to argue against that view rather than what he imagines Leighton Flowers' view is. But we'll let Leighton Flowers tell all this. I don't know. The scripture uses analogies all the time to take things that are divine and to help us to understand what, what the point is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's, they're not to be uh, provide a proof they're there to provide an explanation as to what one believes. So, the, so if yeah. I'm trying to illustrate what I believe, then I then I might use an analogy to illustrate what I believe. I'm not using it as a proof to say this. It's it must be true because of this analogy. I really like this uh, point by Leighton Flowers. This is uh, stated in Scott Adams' book uh, Win Bigly. I think it's uh, from the Win Bigly book, where he points out analogies are very useful for introducing concepts. They in themselves are not an argument. An analogy gives you a frame, a way of looking at something uh, that you might not have considered before. It gives you access to that frame. It, in themselves, they're not very persuasive. But Leighton Flowers points out his analogies 
show how he views a situation. David Lewis is going to have to counter that view rather than a view of his own construction. I'm using the analogy to demonstrate how, yeah. it, how, how I believe. And so um, the, the analogies aren't meant to be um, a proof for my view. I think the scripture has to be the proof. No, I understand that. I, that's not, that, that. My point was analogies have all kinds of different aspects that have to be considered as you're considering the analogy. Um, so, for example, right. in the one you just gave, yes, there are starving children in Africa, but I'm not the omnipotent God who could okay. change that with a snap of my finger, which I could, and he doesn't. So all theistic systems have to account for that. I mean, this is the problem of evil, the classic problem of evil. Why would an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God permit, allow, whatever word you want to use, suffering and evil in a universe he created? You know, and all theists have to answer that question at some level, right? I mean, whether you're a Calvinist or not. Well, in the free will theodicy uh, yeah. of C.S. Lewis is... Do we have to answer that question? Is is that anything but uh, uh, an emotional plea? What happens, I think we pointed out in the George H. Smith Atheism Case Against God episode that a lot of these problems stem from people inventing definitions of words, and then those definitions bump up against other definitions of other words that they invented omnipotence god can do anything but then they're like oh but god can't lie god can't sin therefore omnipotence is now redefined to mean you know fill fill in the gaps whatever uh can is possible without violating this other principle god is everywhere therefore he can't choose not to be somewhere so omnipotence doesn't cover being able to choose not to know something not to be somewhere uh omnipotence doesn't uh, doesn't uh, allow for sinning. You know, they, they have to add limitations to these words which are supposedly giving God infinite power, infinite knowledge, if infinite presence. They put limitations on those because inherently those words are contradictory. But you're not going to find their definitions of these words in the Bible. It's really a modern construct. And a lot of these problems originate originate precisely because it's a construct that they're they're placing over the Bible and they're trying to interpret the Bible in and their the their constructs that they they crafted in their minds contradict one another. And I don't I don't think the Bible's written like that. I don't think the Bible has those same concerns or thinks in those same categories. So it's actually not an issue for a Semitic mindset rather than a Greek philosophical mindset. I don't think the ancient Israelites struggled with the problem of evil in precisely the same way that we did. And so uh, in the Psalms, if God's not acting to correct a wrong, then God is in the wrong. But we would try to justify that, whereas we don't see those types of justifications, the same ones that we apply. We don't find those in the Bible, in the biblical authors. Is very famous. You hear it from Robert Zacharias. You hear it from William yeah. Lane Craig. And so it's a very well-known matter. In fact, I've heard Archie's rule, ironically enough, use yeah. the free will defense yeah. as a theodicy, as his as his answer for why evil exists. Um, and, and yet it seems like if you, I, I don't see how that is consistent while holding to exhaustive divine determinism to also use the free will defense uh, when you don't believe in uh, the freedom of the will in such a way. And not all evils, as we define them, are from uh, uh, people. 
Uh, not everything's from free will. For example, you might be driving down the road and a rock might fall on your car. Uh, you're next to a mountain and there's like a little avalanche. No people caused it. No free will was involved. It's just physics. It's just time for those rocks to go through weathering. And the rock crushes your car and kills your family. That type of evil is not attributable to free will. So you also have to deal with natural evil, as you might say. And one thing about the ancient Israelites, they probably didn't conceptualize evil in the same way we do. We, we might consider evil a metaphysical construct where, where in like, for example, in the What's in the Bible series, it shows Adam and Eve walking around and then they sin and these little sin units attached to them. And pretty soon they're covered with sin units. So is sin, is that a metaphysical tally of our rights and wrongs? And there's adequate evidence in the Bible, especially very early in the Bible, that they didn't hold this concept of sin where it's a metaphysical tally. It's a metaphysical uh, scorecard that, uh, that tallies up all your bads that you've done over a lifetime. All right, we're going to fast forward and we're going to skip over to Leighton Flowers pointing to the Jeremiah verses. There's three of them in which God never commanded something, nor did it enter his mind to command it. And uh, we'll see what their discussion is. We, you know, we, we've uh, bashed on uh, Arminianism quite a lot already, so we'll switch over to the Calvinist view. This is David Lewis. As, as, in first, as, as that would be the blessings that are, are predetermined for those who are in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1. So I think the all things are in reference to the things he's working out for his people in, in time. Um, and, and so you, you say, as according to your, your statements of faith, God decrees all things. But here, even in the ESV, and I use the ESV when I'm talking to Calvinists because sometimes they like that translation better uh -huh. than the others. Uh -huh. um, but it says, you know, speaking of, of people, um, they're, they're making offerings to other gods uh -huh. and the kings of Judah, they, because they've filled with this place of blood of innocence and they built the high places to the Baal and burned their sons and daughters in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or decree, nor did it enter my mind, nor did it come into my mind. Now, let's just ignore, nor did it come into my mind, because we could, uh, you, maybe, you maybe could dismiss that as an anthropomorphism and say, well, that's just a human-like quality given to God. But for, for the scriptures to literally say, I didn't command for you to burn them. I didn't decree it. Um, and yet your system says he decrees everything. And yet the Bible says he didn't decree this. So Leighton Flowers seems to be reading this verse like uh, a normal open theist would read this verse. They use this verse as a proof text for open theism, which is valid in some senses and not valid in others. If, if you're looking at the verse and what's being communicated here, it, it seems to be a reference to God not ever thinking to command Israel to sacrifice their children to the Baals. And so it's, it's interesting to try to look at what's going on here. Sometimes Baal is equated with Yahweh, Yahweh Baal. You have uh, Yahweh being called Baal in uh, Hosea. Hosea, he's, he's given a Baal derivative name. And uh, what's probably happening in Jeremiah 19.5 and in those equivalent verses in which children are being sacrificed to Moloch is probably people in Israel are taking their children and sacrificing them in Yahweh's name. And God's saying, this is abhorrent. I never commanded you to sacrifice children to me. It never entered my mind that uh, this is what we're going to be doing is sacrificing children to me. 
So it's not about this event is so horrible. I never thought you guys would ever do this. Although you, you can read that in this verse, you could see God's utter disgust. You could see his shock, uh, how, how he reacts to this. And you, you, could, you could say, practically speaking, this is how this verse is functioning. God's utter disgust is showing his surprise, um, his revulsion, and his, uh, he never expected this to occur. He's so uh, revolted by this event. And, you know, there, there's verses in which God says, you know, you shouldn't be sacrificing your children to me prior, which which means he knew it was a possibility at some point previously. But thinking that they'd ever go through it, even after he gave him commands against it, it, it doesn't seem to have been on his radar. But it's not a good proof text. So it's if you're arguing open theism, I probably wouldn't turn here because there's alternative common sense explanations and it doesn't have the weight that other proof texts would. So if you're arguing in a debate, your proof texts are going to be those proof texts which are most easy to defend. Not everything that can be used in affirmation of your position is the best proof text because not everything is as strong. Even though those could be additional evidences for your position, presenting them in an argument is not a good idea because then They'll say, well, I have these different readings of this verse and these different readings are natural and it'll undermine your actual point. So if you're debating, this is the thing with Calvinists, you know, you, you come to a debate and they want to shotgun proof text you, you just look at their first verse. That's apparently going to be their best verse, right? That's the one they throw out first. They should have the most confidence in that. And then they hit you with a medley of not like 15 different verses. You look at the first one. If the first one doesn't say what they're claiming it says, you could basically dismiss them all. Because what they're doing is this weak proof texting where if they, they grab a verse and try to see if the verse has anything that they can construe to their position. And then they'll make a list of these verses and they'll just shotgun them out there and try to overrun the debate. Uh, bog you down in the details. So you look at the first verse. If it doesn't say what they say it says, you say all your verses are suspect. You're not doing good theology. Uh, you're you're trying this diversion tactic, trying to pretend you have evidence that doesn't actually exist. So that's why I don't think this is a, this is a very good verse against Calvinism. However, because as Layton Flowers is pointing out. In Calvinism, God decrees all things. God wants all things. All things are to God's greatest glory. But in Jeremiah 19.5, God says, It never even entered my mind to command Israel to do this thing. This thing that in Calvinism, God has decreed everything, right? And so, at contrawise, this verse says it never entered his mind to command this thing. In Calvinism, this was an eternal command flowing directly from the mind of God. This verse disproves Calvinism. Not necessarily Arminianism, but absolutely Calvinism. We'll see how David Lewis deals with this. And you've also got the first John 2 16 that I've already mentioned that that pride, lust are not from the Father, but from the world, and yet you say God's decreed for lust and pride. And so and that seems to be the decree is from the Father. So to say that God decrees lust and pride and say it's not from the Father seems inconsistent with these types of verses. How do you yeah, you deal with those kinds of so I would make a distinction in God's decree, and I would say that uh, certainly all things that happen in time is part of God's decree, but then Calvinists make the distinction, which some people reject, but uh, the secret will and the revealed will of God. So what? So basically they have to invent a mechanism 
where the face value of the text needs to be rejected. Guess what? In their mind, they think Jeremiah, when he's writing this, when he's penning this, it might, may look like he's saying God never decreed it and never came into their mind, into God's mind to do this, that they should do this. But secretly, he had in the back of his mind that God had a secret decree that all things will play out as God eternally degrees for his greatest glory. Is that a rational explanation of the text? It sounds to me like a mechanism to deny the face value reading of any text at will, at their own leisure. Calvinists don't care about the text. They are telling us explicitly they hold to a system in which it doesn't matter what the Bible says, their theology will always be correct. Is This is a bankrupt theology. Calvinism is intellectually bankrupt. It, it doesn't care about the Bible. The Bible could say anything, and they will maintain their theology. Calvinism is a cult. Calvinism is a cult. There's no, it's not falsifiable. There's nothing the Bible could say, and I've, I've got Calvinists uh, screenshotted saying this, there is literally nothing the Bible could say to make them believe that the Bible doesn't teach Calvinism. This is their view, that the text secretly means their theology, despite, despite what the face value reading of the text is. Jeremiah is talking about in this text is the command, or de and I think decree is synonym to command, so I don't know if that word decree there could bear the weight of saying that's the same thing I as a Calvinist am saying about God's decree. But I would say that what that verse means is, according to God's revealed will, clearly God did not command them to uh, offer their sons in the fire to Baal. That's against the text. Yeah, secretly, Jeremiah has a very secret view of God that's not apparent in the text and contrary to the text. This is their claim. That the text doesn't mean what it says. You can't take it literally. Uh, there's a secret system you have to apply beneath the text that really means our theology is true, despite zero, zero indication in the text that our theology is true. Ten Commandments. That's against the yeah, rabbi of God. He causally determined them to do it. But yeah, all things, God's ultimately in control of everything, yeah. So do you think that, how does that comport with a verse that says, I didn't decree or command it, nor did it come into my mind? How, how can you read that and then say, yeah, but he did... Well, because you're because you're compressing two you're compressing two ideas together there. This verse is not dealing with this verse is not written to answer the question of God's control or sovereign control over the actions of men. This is God. The Look at this. They think that every biblical author was a secret Calvinist, wrote in ways explicitly against Calvinist basic theology, uh, but just had a secret system underneath. All biblical authors were secret Calvinists. Prophets simply saying to the people, because you're offering your sons in the fire to Baal, I didn't command you to do that. That's clearly against my law. I, guess all, I mean, in other words, I'm not going to read that much into the text and say, well, this text clearly is God addressing divine determinism and exhaustive. I mean, I don't think it's. I don't think the verse is doing that. To be honest with you, I don't think a ton of verses do that. Addressing it still, though, um, if... if if he's the one who causally determined for them to burn their children. Yeah, look at the thrust of this verse, what's going on here. The verse is depicting utter disgust. And the Calvinist will say, this is to God's greatest glory, secret decree from God. Uh, God causally, God, God made it happen. He was the cause. He made it happen. He determined, he predestined it to his greatest glory. And the verse explicitly 
is showing utter disgust in God. God is revolted by what is happening. And so Calvinism takes the plain or meaning, the plain reading of the text, and says all, all these things don't mean what they say because there's a secret system that only we have access to underlying the text. They're, they're, they're cultists. They are literal cultists. Why would he say this as if he didn't want it to happen, as if he was condemning it, as if it didn't even enter his mind? What, what would he be his motive in saying this? Is he being disingenuous? Because if we did this, it would be disingenuous. In other words, if I was somehow casually through secondary means causing um, my neighbor to uh, to do something horrible to the, the neighborhood, and and then I was walking out there and I was expressing my disdain for it, and I can't believe you did that. I did not command you to do that. I didn't decree for you that. I didn't, it didn't even come in my mind that you would do that in this neighborhood, yet I was somehow causing him to do it through secret secret means, everybody would just say, well, Leighton, you're duplicitous, you're being disingenuous, because causally you're determining that person to do that horrible thing while expressing to him your lack of desire for him to do it, you're condemning him for doing it, and you're saying it didn't even enter your mind, while at the same time, you're the one who's causally determining it somehow behind the scenes. Do you see, my, do you see the angst that that creates? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do see that, um, and I would say that... Um, I'd say you're reading way too much into that text. I think that text is not even written by the Holy Spirit to to bear the weight of all those issues. I think it's simply saying that God is looking at the Israelites and the prophet is sent to them and they are disobeying his law and they are offering children to Molech and the prophet is saying, this is a sin and the way he's describing a sin is God saying, I didn't command you to do this. this isn't that convenient? So the Bible is not a systematic theology. This is pointed out by Christine Hayes, biblical scholar, Yale University. The Bible is not a systematic theology. And so the Bible is not written to address all these concerns that David Lewis might have. Divine determinism of all things, right? Uh, this, uh, this eternal now, God outside space and time, perfectly simple. And because, because the ancient Semites did not have this available, in, in, in uh, their theolog theological spectrum, none of the Bible's written towards that. So conveniently, there's none of these verses are written directly about his theology. He could always say to any verse that we ever come across, well, it's not really about that. It's about this other thing. And therefore, we can't take it uh, and take the implications from what's going on here and take it against our theology. This is written from a different perspective for a different purpose. Very, very convenient for someone who holds a theology not at all described within the Bible. It's, it's nowhere to be found. I had that uh, debate on Isaiah their strongest proof text for eternal foreknowledge of all events, the Calvinists use it for God controlling all things. Uh, they, he didn't show anything in the text that indicates that Isaiah was a Calvinist, uh, much less not an open theist. Uh, there's, there's just nothing there for their theology. And so it's a secret system that you impose on the text and you just dismiss, you find dismissal mechanisms for any text you run across. And you don't take them seriously. You don't understand the function of language of idiom, where idioms connect conceptual spheres, different circles. It takes uh, our conception of one thing and maps it against our conception of another. There's truth that's being communicated in all language. 
or else the language is meaningless. He thinks that this is a grand facade by God to trick people into actions. Why? What's going on there? Because doesn't God control all things? Why does God have to trick people into believing things or doing things? If God's uh, determining all things, God's kind of acting against himself. Uh, it's it's this weird theology that, that makes no sense. And they you have to be in a special mind frame to accept, to accept Calvinism, their, their view about how the world works and functions. Their prayers to God for God to do things when uh, that prayer is either meaningless at best or against God's glory at worst. This is their model that they have to struggle with. It's not a biblical model. No one in the Bible accepted this model of the world, how it works. And we know that because we could read their writings. What in Jeremiah makes you think that Jeremiah accepted God determining all things, every single bullet that hit every single observer at that Texas event? What, what makes you think that Jeremiah held that view? Where in Jeremiah do we get this idea? This is not part of my uh, revealed will. And once again, from your system, so from the Calvinist system, yes, we have to account for how God is the sovereign one who is meticulously in control of everything. It's He's the sovereign one. He turns the hearts of kings what, however he wants to, those type of verses. Um, but I want to hear from your perspective. So what you're saying then is when God's watching the Israelites commit these sins, there's no sense whatsoever that that's part of his plan. Like this has nothing to do with God bringing about the exile so that the the Israelites will be exiled into Babylon, and then they will return, you know. If you're asking, does God have a, a purpose in permitting free creatures to act in evil ways? Yes, he does yeah. have a purpose in that. I don't believe he purposed for them to kill children. I believe they their purpose is an evil purpose. That's why it's not of God. If it was God's purpose, then it would be of God. If it's yeah. their purpose, then it's of them. But sure. God has a purpose in allowing for their purpose to continue. Well that's, my, well, that's my understanding of compatibilism. God has a purpose, and they have a purpose. They made the choice to kill the children. The problem with compatibilism is that there's no distinct difference between the purpose of man and the sovereign decree, because the sovereign decree is what causally determines the purpose of man. And that's the problem, is that there's, no, there's nothing on which to rest the blameworthiness of the man themselves, because there's no distinct difference between what the man desires and what God has decreed for him to desire. Yeah. No, I understand. I understand what you're that's saying. That's part of the problem. And this is, and this kind of goes to what you were saying with David Pullman in your debate, where you you continue to talk about how God always gets what He wants, and if God doesn't get what He wants, and He's failing, and so the the kind of question I would have is, do you believe? Okay, let me ask. The whole, the whole Bible, the entire narrative of the Bible is God does not get what He wants. This is God struggling with mankind from the very a day, week, a hour that God created man, man is continually thwarting God, uh, dashing God's expectations, causing pain and misery to God. As in any relationship, relationships are give and take. You have an emotional investment. And God's emotional investment is time and time uh, let down, is uh, stretched, is, is damaged. God is hurt. Uh, you see, you, you see uh, extreme moments of joy and pleasure as well. Don't get me wrong. All relationships have their up and down. God sings songs of joy over us. Uh, these types of things are in the Bible. God's relationship it, with mankind involves give and take. God doesn't always get what he wants. The story of the Bible 
is God not getting what God wants. God doesn't want these Israelites to sacrifice their children. They are sacrificing their children. David Lewis says, oh, he secretly actually wants what he, what he displays visceral disgust for. David Lewis, this, this is his position. God is displaying in this text, the words written there show a, a visual disgust. God is deeply disgusted by these actions of the Israelites, but God secretly wants them. And if God didn't secretly want these child sacrifices, then God's failing. You're right, because God's not getting what God wants. Uh, this is the corruption of David Lewis's theology of his uh, biblical reading. He doesn't care about what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible's always subservient to a secret system that's accessible typically only to Calvinists is their, their, their common claim. You have to be really elect to understand the Bible. The Bible is not subject to reading comprehension. His, his theology takes precedence. His theology, nowhere found in the Bible, takes precedence over the actual language of the Bible. Uh, you look at the concerns of even Lane Flowers here. Uh, are these are these biblical concerns? Anyways, we're going pretty long, and I'm going to have to cut us off here. Lane Flowers, uh, we we've heard him say that uh, his uh, his uh, dealing with God's omniscience is a mystery. Elsewhere in this podcast, somewhere I, I didn't find it for this episode, but he says he doesn't know how God's omniscience functions. The correct answer is if you're an Arminian or a Molinist, that God gains his omniscience not through sources external to himself. In fact, his omniscience is eternal, ungenerated, and identical with himself. If God were to gain propositional knowledge at any point in time, you are an open theist. So Leighton Flowers, to answer that question of how God gains his, his knowledge, if your answer is anything other than eternal, ungenerated, unfalsifiable knowledge, you are an open theist. And Leighton Flowers, instead of answering the question, appeals to mystery anyways that's enough for today uh, questions comments put that down below or start a thread on the god is open facebook group and thank you for listening